Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, amazing real life stories, celebrity interviews, investigations and politics. The common theme is, hopefully, it's all interesting. This time, Andrew Mitchell MP, the former Secretary of State for International Development. Keen to speak to Andrew about Prime Minister Boris Johnson's decision to create a new super ministry in which DFID, the Department for International Development, is being merged with the Foreign Office. Now, the plan has been condemned by three former Prime Ministers, including David Cameron, who appointed Andrew Mitchell to the job. Andrew, uh, hello. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Good evening, Adrian. Good to hear you again. Let's just hear Boris Johnson's announcements in Parliament, Andrew. We must now strengthen our position in an intensely competitive world by making sensible changes. And so I have decided to merge DFID with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to create a new department, a new department, the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. And this will unite our aid with our diplomacy and bring them together in our international effort. DFID has amassed world-class expertise and all of its people can take pride in how they have helped to transform the lives of hundreds of millions of people across the world. So there we go, Andrew. He talks about uniting our aid with our diplomacy. I want to explore exactly what that means. But for people who are new to this subject, just first tell us what DFID actually does. Secretary of State for Development, you had a very good reputation for being genuinely interested in the job and not simply seeing it as another rung on the career ladder. What things did you see personally on the ground during your time at DFID that make you that made you feel the work was valuable? Well, I think, for example, at the time I was in uh, northern Uganda, where we were trying to do something 
to help women's reproductive health, to help uh, women who wanted access to family planning get it. And in the poor world, this matters enormously. Giving uh, women the ability to decide for themselves whether and when they have children. And I remember watching about 50 women sitting under a tree being talked to by experts and doctors and clinicians about contraception. And at the end of uh, the talk, uh, the person giving it said, how many of you would now like to uh, take advantage of the advice we can give you individually about contraception and family planning? And every single hand went up and then they formed three orderly queues and they got the advice, they were told what the options were, and they then went back having got access to contraception. And I remember the Conservative Party's Social Action Project in Rwanda. We built a health centre there, and you know, I opened it in, in, on July the 26th, 2012. And I attended a family planning clinic there. This lady came in from the fields, and through an interpreter, I heard that she got four children. And she thought she was pregnant again, and she said, you know, how worried she was because she thought that that would break her family. She thought her husband would leave, and they tested her, and they found that she wasn't pregnant. And I watched the reaction of that lady. She she laughed, she cried, she started ululating, she did a dance, and you could see how how dramatic this would have been in her life. And then she was able to get contraceptive advice. She had a contraceptive implant, and she headed back to her family. Her, you know, her life effectively transformed by that. So, I mean, that was one of the things, and we then had an enormous summit in London where we got a lot of the major countries of the world to come along and pledge money to provide support for giving women this opportunity to make this decision for themselves. Um, and as a result of that, if everyone sticks to the pledges they made, it's eight years ago now, over the course of that decade, we would have reduced by 50% the number of women in the world who want access to contraception but cannot get it. And, and you know, in a country like Mali, for example, where after all European forces, French forces have been deployed to stop the growth of terrorism there, which uh, although a long way away has a, a, a direct potential of threat on our own streets in London and in Birmingham, um, that's a country which is enormously insecure politically. It's enormously insecure economically. There is starvation. There is huge population growth. And contraceptive prevalence, the ability of women to get access to contraception, is terribly, terribly low. And so, uh, you know, you make an enormous difference to those communities. You, it means that, that the, the world doesn't have to deploy expensive military forces to beat back the terrorists because you've got some sort of stability there. And uh, achieving something like that in a, in a country that's one of the poorest countries in the world, it really matters, and it's an area of acute leadership. Uh, by Britain. But I saw that and we did a huge amount on vaccinations. We, we've just had in Britain the last few weeks a summit on vaccinations and replenishing the funds for the Global Alliance for Vaccinations, which Boris uh, launched last week. But back in 2011, we held the first big replenishment for Gavi in London and raised enormous amounts of money from around the world, including from even from uh, the Vatican and from companies uh, from the corporate sector as well as nation states. And the result of that with British leadership was that over the period of those five years from 2010 to 2015, Britain was vaccinating a child in the poor world every two seconds, was saving the life of a child every two 
diseases which thank goodness our children in Britain no longer die from. Now Boris Johnson has committed to keep the 0.7% of GDP given to aid. There'll be no reduction in Britain's financial contribution in percentage terms at least. And he used this phrase, he wants to unite our aid with our diplomacy. What does that mean and does it concern you? Well, I don't understand what it means because, of course, uh, overseas, the British platform, uh, Britain's interests are always run by the British ambassador or the British High Commissioner if it's a Commonwealth country. And this it fits in, un- in underneath that. And uh, development and diplomacy, they are, they are complementary, but they're not the same thing. And, you know, it's, it's a, in shorthand in the industry, DFID does money, the Foreign Office does words, does prose. Very, very good at that and representing our country overseas. But the idea that an ambassador with uh, great skills will be able to run a multi-million pound project and ensure value for money for the British taxpayer and for results on the ground, it's just not going to happen. The skills are completely different and therefore they are complementary skills and you need to tie them together. And the suggestion that Boris made that, you know, you can't have one day an ambassador going in and asking a head of state not to cut off the head of his opponent and the next day did it going in with a cheque for £250 million. That is insulting and wrong. First of all, there has never been a situation like that ever in the history of British diplomacy and overseas work. And secondly, it's extremely insulting to the officials who work in DFID, who, if you think about it, and you look at the record, are very hot on human rights and so on. And the idea that they wouldn't care about the human rights in a country of the type that Boris described is is insulting and untrue. I guess the implication is that if countries want to receive British aid, they have to more explicitly dance to Britain's foreign policy tune. Well, when we conducted the review of all Britain's programmes overseas, uh, it was called the Bilateral Aid Review, it hadn't really been done like this before, we assessed every country on the basis of, of, is there a British historic link here? Is this an area of the world where Britain has historic interests and strong commercial interests? And so we look particularly at the Commonwealth and so forth. And is is the programme there giving value for money? So British interest on the one hand, value for money on the other. And that is the right way to do it. But also, when we carried out that review, we tied it all together through the National Security Council. The Foreign Office gave their view. I talked, I remember, to David Cameron about the issues which I was concerned about. And then we reached a position as government. And the idea that did it just go off and decide these things entirely on its own is simply not true. It doesn't happen like that. These are these are whole decisions of government. And the complementary nature of development, diplomacy and defence as well, and the way in which you tie all three of those things together through the National Security Council, which was a David Cameron innovation brought in in 2010, is very important for the uh, delivery of global Britain for the delivery of British foreign policy overseas. And that's hugely in our national interest. It's hugely in the interest of those people we seek to serve. But it does all get tied together. And while they are different, as I say, they are complementary. And uh, what I've described is the right way in which it should happen. So do you think that Boris Johnson 
just doesn't understand that. He is, of course, a former foreign secretary. Does he not understand that? Or is there something else going on here, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned because I think that uh, you don't need to change the structure to alter the way the money is spent. And therefore, I worry very much that the commitment to the 0.7 will morph into another statement which says, well, we don't think the rules governing the 0.7 are quite right, so we're going to invent our own rules. And once you remove the rules which are laid down by the OECD Development Assistance Committee, then there won't be any development funds because the money will be taken by the stronger departments, by defence, by the Home Office, by business, and by the Foreign Office. And, you know, the development budget, once you take away the rules, will You believe then there is some kind of ulterior motive here for Boris Johnson and that international aid on the scale in which Britain has provided it historically and the way in which it has provided it historically is under attack from the Prime Minister. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I take him, um, I take, I take what he said yesterday uh, as what he means that the 0.7 is going to continue and is safe. But if you try to undermine the rules on the way in which the 0.7 is uh, spent or change it to introduce new British rules which deviate from the international rules that are laid down by the OECD DAC, then I would regard that as basically the uh, fundamental breach of the manifesto commitment to development and the 0.7. And I very much don't want to see that happen. Let's just have a listen to another clip from that statement in Parliament by Boris Johnson. Diffid and uh, the FCO are now joining together to become a new uh, Whitehall Super Department for International Affairs, which will uh, be of huge benefit to our ability to project Britain's sense of, of mission about overseas aid and it's for too long frankly a UK uh, overseas aid has been treated as some giant cash point in the sky uh, that arrives uh, without any reference uh, to UK interests or to the, the values that the UK uh, wishes to express or the, or the priorities diplomatic political or commercial of the government of the UK. So Andrew some very strong words there from Boris Johnson the idea that Foreign aid, international aid, is seen as a as a giant cash point in the sky. Is it seen as that on the ground in your experience? No, of course it isn't. And uh, the way the way the system works is we decide how the we decide as a government how the money should be deployed, whether it should be through the multilateral system, which is organisations like uh, UNICEF or the World Bank or the African Development Bank, or whether it should be through the bilateral programs, in other words, the country-to-country programs, whether it's Commonwealth countries like Kenya, Uganda, or Rwanda. And once you've decided that, the job of DFID is to make sure that the money is really well spent. Our commitment to taxpayers is that for every one pound of hard-earned taxpayers' money we spend, we really get 100 pence of results on the ground. And we 
impact, which is a taxpayer's friend. It's there to ensure that money really is well spent and to blow the whistle if it isn't. So this money is incredibly carefully looked after by different civil servants. I made the point earlier that the, the, the skill of running multi-million pound projects and getting real value for money and results out of that is very much a different skill. So, so the idea that there's some sort of huge money tree which disperses money willy-nilly in the, in the way that Boris described in the House of Commons is simply not true. You'll be aware, I'm sure, that foreign aid is sometimes very controversial with those taxpayers that you reference. People will point to the fact that India, which is a beneficiary of British aid, has a nuclear weapons programme, as well as being a, a very thrusting entrepreneurial country. I believe China even receives some level of British aid. And people might say, well, look, if those countries are going to be, in the case of China, a very strong economic competitor to us, in the case of India, if they're going to spend billions on nuclear weapons, then it's really inappropriate for British foreign aid to go to those countries. And it's well worth unpacking, for example, one of those countries. Now, when, on the first day that I arrived in DFID in 2010, on the very first morning, the first moment I got to the desk, I said that we are no longer giving aid to China. We'd made a commitment in opposition that we would stop. I told the Chinese ambassador in London that we weren't going to continue. I remember she was very cross about it, but I made it clear that China was a superpower roaring out of poverty and we could no longer justify spending taxpayers' money. And on that first morning in DFID in 2010, I said that there would be no more payments to China unless they were legally, contractually due, no more checks at all. And that is the position of DFID. But as you know, some development money is spent by other departments. And I think you will find, if you look, that every penny of development money that is spent in China is not spent by DFID. It is spent by the Foreign Office. And the Foreign Office decide, and they're perfectly entitled to, how to spend money so long as they spend it under the ODA rules. But the decision that was made on China about not spending development money there was a DFID decision which DFID has stood by. So, so it's very important to, to get to the truth of all of this. It's very easy to say that DFID is spending money in China and shouldn't be, but DFID stopped uh, nearly 10 years ago doing that, and it's not DFID which is spending that money in China today. And it was, after all, DFID which wound down the program in India. India had always been the biggest uh, British development partner, spending the most money there since the Second World War until 2011. And uh, for the very good reasons you said, we reined it back and we said to the Indians we were walking the last mile with them on development and we changed the programme into investment, pro-poor investment, so the British taxpayer gets a benefit from that and technical assistance, which we have also wound down in order to help uh, India deal with the fact, for example, that some 40% of all the malnourished children in the world are found in India and British know-how and British expertise is helping the Indians direct and spend their own money on tackling that problem. Interesting though that you say that development money is still spent in China, albeit by the Foreign Office rather than by DFID. Of course DFID is now under this plan going to be merged with the Foreign Office. It does suggest, doesn't it, that there is some tension between the priorities of the Foreign Office and the priorities of DFID? Well, DFID, DFID 
very clear about where and how we spend money. The, the, the Foreign Office don't uh, see development in the same way. They see this money as being an extension of British power and influence. That points, though, doesn't it, to the innate tension uh, that is surely going to exist in this newly created super department? to the point I made earlier then, given that experts in the field like yourself, experts like three former prime ministers, including the Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron, given that people with this level of authority and knowledge in the area are speaking out about it, what on earth can Boris Johnson's motive be? Well, you'll have to ask him. I don't know, but I think it's a a quite extraordinary self-inflicted wound and a And it was a decision taken, we understand, from Matt Hancock without Cabinet discussion, without Cabinet approval. Does that surprise you? Um, Does it surprise me? Not entirely, but uh, it dismays me. Andrew Mitchell, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for sharing your expertise on DFID with us. Really appreciate you joining us here on Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Just to say, if you've enjoyed this episode, please spread the word on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Goldberg Radio. If you want to drop me a suggestion for a future interviewee, maybe you've got a story to share, or if you want to sponsor the podcast, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com. Thank you very much indeed for listening. And thank you, Andrew Mitchell. Thank you.